Not quite right. My name's Ed. And I'm Amanda. Amanda, on today's show, we're going to be dissecting a six foot rabbit. Um. <laughs> <laughs> That's the movie Harvey from 1950 in the segment we like to call Get Wrecked. And in the main segment, somewhat related to Harvey, we're going to be talking about the idea of nostalgia and sharing the books and movies that have most affected us growing up and what they mean to us today. So, a woman who I did a writing course with years ago now. Uh, has since published a few books and I just read her latest book that's a middle grade book and so I'm in the middle grade world, she's in the middle grade world and what I noticed was that there's some a couple of things in this book that are things that are in my book. Oh no. <laughs> and I'm like, damn it, she got there first. <laughs> like big things, like characters or settings or? Settings, definitely. Sort of themes as well, I guess. But just some key, very specific things that are just quite random, that are quite important to my story, uh, that just happen to be in her story too. And it just seems like such a coincidence that these random things have just been plucked out of thin air by both of us and the stories themselves are completely different. Mm. Um, But I just found it funny and frustrating. I think it's just that whole thing of like, if only I had done it yeah. faster, you know, if I'd got around to it and, you know, you just feel like you can't possibly have an original thought. Yeah, you get this <laughs> feeling when you've got an idea, like you've got to get it down as quick as possible. That's right, so and get it out. It. But, you know, even so, there's a lot of room for similar ideas with different characters. and. That's right. I mean, we know there's no such thing as an original idea mm. anyway. Uh, but nevertheless, when you think you have something that's just a little bit... It's maybe not an original idea, but it's just something a little bit unique or a bit fresh and then you see it on the shelves. It is so frustrating. So I'm very happy for her, a bit frustrated for myself, interested to see, like it's not going to change what I'm writing, I suppose. Um, I'm not going to take it out. Yeah, so you haven't been put off writing. No, I haven't been put off and I guess it's not similar enough to alarm me. Yeah. It's just, It's just, I suppose, what made it interesting was how specific these things are (laughs) Um, and how there's a couple, you know, in the one, in the one book that have translated over. So anyway, good fun. Mm. Good for her. It's a great book. So. But you would say that because it was your idea. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. um, So apart from seeing these two things appear in this other book, I've had another issue since I last saw you. Mm -hmm. It starts with some wonderful joyous news, which is that I have a new nephew, um, which is wonderful. The problem is um, he's got the name of one of my characters in my book. Oh, no. <laughs> so now, obviously, I'm going to have to rename That's my character. Right. I'm not going to suggest to my sister that she rename her son. <laughs> uh, but this character, he's a bit of a dork. So I just feel like, look, I've got to, you know, I've got to do the right thing and I've got to rename him. Uh, but I've, I have so much trouble naming characters in yeah. the first place. And I, oh, once I figured his name out, I'm like, that's it. It's perfect. That's the name. And yep. now back to the drawing board. So it's a first world problem, I suppose. <laughs> but no, but seriously, that's two things that you've had stolen from you in the course of a week. It's yeah, a and, lot. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot to deal with. It's a lot to deal with. It's a lot to take in. All right, it's time for the part of the show we call Get Wrecked, where we take turns recommending to each other books, TV shows and movies that we enjoy, even though they may not always be the other person's cup of tea. Mm -hmm. So today's recommendation was your choice, Amanda, a movie from 1950 called Harvey. That's right. I chose this movie because I guess it's 
really always stuck in my mind as a really beautiful movie and one that, I don't know, it's like inspirational. Mm-hmm. Makes me feel good. It makes it, It's like aspirational too. It's, yep. it's how I want to be. And I think the moral of the story in Harvey, it kind of fits my view on life. Um, so I'm nervous to hear what you think. Okay. So the movie Harvey, it's a black and white movie and it's actually based on a Pulitzer Prize winning play by the same name. And it receives several Oscar nominations and an Oscar win, I think, for Best Supporting Actress. But basically it's a movie about a character called Elwood P. Dowd, who is a bit of a drinker. <laughs> Just We might get to that a little bit later, but he has an imaginary friend called Harvey. And Harvey is a six-foot, three-and-a-half-inch rabbit from memory, white rabbit. Yep. And uh, he's, I think it's safe to say he's Elwood's best friend. And the story is basically about how Elwood's imaginary friend Harvey has come to create a few issues for his sister and his niece's social life. And so they decide they're going to have Elwood committed over it. And hilarity ensues. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's interesting that you brought up the drinking because, like, I don't know why that was such a big part of Elwood's character. Mm. Like, and they emphasised, oh, yeah, he's, he's like, always drunk Mm. and he's always going to the bar. And it's not like he goes and he doesn't drink. He Mm. goes and he drinks a lot. He does drink a lot. what do you think that was all about? Well, I actually found that really interesting myself coming back to watch it again. Because watching it in the past, that wasn't something I really picked up on a lot, even Mm. though it's very prevalent throughout the film. I guess because he doesn't ever act drunk, you know what I mean? Like he's not sort of stumbling all over the place. He's a very pleasant character. Mm -hmm. And so I just never picked up on it. But watching it back now, I was fascinated to see, like you say, how much a part of the movie it was. And I found it even more moving, to be honest with you, because what we find out is that he's had some trauma. Mm-hmm. And so the drinking is in response to mm-hmm. the trauma that he's had. And presumably the drinking is why he's started to see Harvey the rabbit. So we wouldn't have Harvey without the drinking, no? I, I really wasn't sure what to make of the drinking because it seemed very contrary to the the character that they were trying to, to build up and the character being someone who is... I guess very kind and generous mm. and just kind of outgoing and friendly and wants the world to be a better place. And the drinking just seemed to be undermining it. Mm. But I was kind of spelled out like one of his failings was that he was always going to bars and spending a lot of time there. And I think it could have been spun in a way of, well, he's there because he that's where the people are. That's where the people mm. that he's mingling with and meeting friends. And he wasn't really there for the drinking, but he was always drinking. He was always <laughs> there for the drinking. And what I think is funny too, he always orders a drink for Harvey too. He always orders a drink for Harvey. And, and Harvey, as he says in the movie, doesn't like to drink alone. But no, look, I guess I come back to this. And I told you last time, this I watched this movie with my dad originally mm-hmm. and this was part of him recommending movies to us. Or not recommending, I should say, forcing me to watch them at the time. And I yep. was at an age where a black and white movie just seemed completely boring to me. And this changed my mind on that completely. But coming back to it now, and I've since lost my dad, and Elwood has lost his mother, and I can really relate to him so closely. So what I guess I I noticed on this viewing was his sister Vita just very casually mentions that their mother died in his arms. It's very casually mentioned. And then it's this big shock to everybody that he's out drinking every day, you know. Like to me that's like very clearly a trauma response. Harvey is very clearly... (laughs) filling a void in his life and he says something along the lines of, you know, Harvey said to me, I'd do anything for you, Mr Dowd. Mm -hmm. 
And to me, like Harvey is just completely the replacement for his mother, who he clearly loved, who he lived with his entire life and who died in his arms. And so the drinking has come since she died. Harvey has come since she died. And I think what they make clear as well later on is that this positive attitude that he has, this absolutely enviable positive outlook that he has on life has come at the same time. So he says one of the most quotable quotes is, my mother always said to me, and I'm misquoting here, but effectively, my mother always said to me, Elwood, in this world, you can be oh so smart or oh so pleasant. Mm -hmm. And I was basically, he says, I was smart for a long time, but I recommend pleasant. And that's come since she passed. So I feel like the drinking is actually crucial. It's very much a key mm. plot point. If if the drinking didn't exist, Harvey wouldn't exist. And I don't know. I guess I found it really relatable and I found it really interesting that it was so tossed aside as if like, what's his problem? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and you notice too, there's a stage where his sister Vita empties out her purse yep. and it's full of prescription medication. Yes. And that never gets mentioned. No. And so I, th- I think it's vital to the story, to be honest. And I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. And a big part of it is about the treatment of mental illness and how it's how it's seen in society and it's related to the time the movie was made in, but you have the whole mental institution and mm-hmm. That was something straight that, jacket kind of level. Yeah, sort of, yeah, and as a child, I was always because that's kind of a trope in a lot of movies, like mm. the whole getting locked up in a mental institution. And that was something that really scared me as a child. <laughs> Why like, did you worry that you were no, seeing the, the, the big white that, rabbits? <laughs> no, because you you see movies where like it seems so easy to just commit someone else. Like it's mm. an accusation. It's well, kind of like this movie in particular. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's played for comedic effect in here. And there there is some underlying critique maybe of the of that whole system of, mm. of mental illness and um you know there, there is the mention you said of the prescription drugs and there's the whole the doctors don't really know what they're talking about and mm. it's all very haphazard and yeah well it's i mean it's violent you know yeah. they're, they're dragging them kicking and screaming into this facility and you know there's talk of stripping them off and put shoving them in a bath basically and then shoving them in a padded room mm-hmm and getting injections, you know, unwanted injections and all of this stuff that was probably incredibly realistic at the time and I'm sure still goes on to some degree in certain parts of the world and and behind closed doors. Mm. But it was interesting, you know, watching it in 2022 and looking back and saying, wow, how times have changed and our attitude or at least the attitude of most people I spend my time with towards mental health issues has just come so far. And it's not just the hallucinations, if you might call them that, about Harvey that are treated that way in this film. There's also, you know, ex-cons, you know, people who've come out of jail and and their experience too. So I think that was a key thing. I do think it was interesting. I don't know. I wouldn't want to go to Chumley's Rest. (laughs) No. For those who haven't seen Harvey, uh, Vita's trying to get Elwood committed, basically so he'll stop putting a dampener on her social life and the social life of her daughter. And what ends up happening, spoiler alert, is that they – commit her instead <laughs> because she's describing this rabbit in, in graphic detail and they think, uh-oh, she's she's the one who's seeing yeah. this six-foot rabbit uh, and she gets committed and treated very badly. Um, you would absolutely sue these days uh, and win, yeah, hands sure. down. <laughs> but she's traumatised by the event. So I know this is a universally loved movie. I checked the reviews and there's a lot I did like about the, the movie. Well, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning play. Like how are yeah. you going to argue with that? Yeah. <laughs> Can't argue with that. However. However, 
<laughs> there was something that didn't sit right with me and you've already said that you really liked it and identified with it. So I wanted to hear what your <laughs> thoughts are about what this movie is about because I have a very specific interpretation of this movie. Please tell me yours first. No, no, I want you to tell me yours Oh, first. no, you go. No, no, you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I suppose it's an open interpretation. I, I don't have a fixed view yep. per se. I just have what I get from it. Yep. And to me, there's these themes of seeing things, right? He's Mm -hmm. seeing things. He's seeing a rabbit versus these characters who really aren't seeing what's right in front of their face. So we've got Dr. Sanderson who's got uh, Miss Kelly who's desperately in love with him and he, he just can't even see it even though it's plainly obvious. And then we've got Elwood who sees and notices Miss Kelly, compliments her, builds her up in front of Mr. Sanderson, Dr. Sanderson, I should say, and eventually brings them together because finally he can see her. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I love about the character of Elwood, that he can see and he listens. So he sees and hears and you can see in the characters all around him that they're not doing that. There's a lot of ignoring each other when they're speaking. You even see them put the phone down and walk away, for example. They're not listening. Uh, They're not listening to each other. He repeatedly tries to introduce Harvey to Dr. Sanderson and Miss Kelly and they're ignoring him and he's gesturing toward and they miss it every single time and that's when they commit his sister Vita in place of him because they haven't noticed that he's actually trying to introduce them to this six-foot rabbit this entire time. And I guess that's what I take from it is that it's seeing what could be. It's positivity, you know, it's an optimism. Mm -hmm. I guess it's his unfailing optimism, but also his respect and the way that he gives everybody else around him dignity. He gives everybody the time of day, whether it's someone who's just come out of jail, whether it's the guy who's just watching over the gate of the facility that he's just escaped Mm -hmm. from. Um, You know, he's got time for everyone and it doesn't matter who you are and it doesn't matter what your background is. He'll he'll invite you over for dinner. And... I mean, that's probably problematic <laughs> and, yeah. it, and it does present itself as problematic to his sister and his niece. And there's probably a happy medium there. I'm not suggesting we should all go to a bar and get so wasted that we see a six-foot rabbit to make us happy, but there is this real optimism to it and there's this real this respect that I love. And I, I see him, if we just set the drinking aside, I see him as a real like aspirational sort of character, yeah. his mindset. So I guess that's what I take from it. Yeah, so like I said, I had a a very specific interpretation of the movie and I don't know anything about the author of the original play and what um, their intentions were, you know, in terms of the message or anything. But what I did like about what the movie was trying to say is it it emphasised certain positive traits of Dowd. So he was a good man, very polite, very welcoming of other people. As you said, he was was very generous. He wouldn't think twice about giving even Harvey, his his friend, he wouldn't think twice about giving him to someone else. Mm. Um, So he was completely selfless. He didn't care at all for material things. He didn't care for status or any kind of worldly thing. He was basically warm and open to all kinds of strangers. Didn't matter if they just come out of prison. It didn't matter what status they held in society. And he would just welcome them into the house. And so, so far we're on the same page. We're on the same page. <laughs> but there is the extra implication there that made me feel uncomfortable. And I had to really think about why that was. And it, and it kind of made me reframe the whole movie. Mm-hmm. So the implication there is that all of that stuff I agree with. And then there's the added level, this fantastical um, (laughs) Harvey, right? Mm. And the thing I didn't like about that connection was it's saying, well, to get all of these good things, Mm. you need to be 
a little bit delusional. Mm. It reminded me of some other things and I started to reframe it in my mind. And I mean, I came to the conclusion that it's very much like a Christian allegory, Mm, right? So doubt is essentially Jesus who who goes and visits with (laughs) He's been drinking a fair bit of (laughs) wine. The alcoholism, let's put that aside for a moment. But, but, you know, he's he's, he's going out out visiting the prostitutes and the criminals and Mm. and whatever and welcoming them. He'll, He'll give them whatever he has. Yeah. And he, he You're going to go into dangerous territory. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> but he's definitely kind of a Christ-like figure. Yeah. And the first thing he does is introduce you to his big invisible friend. <laughs> and his big, there we go. His there big invisible is. friend can, if only you will believe in him, mm. he'll give you everything that your heart desires. Yeah. And so for me, that was definitely, this is a Christian allegory. It's like a sneaky Christian allegory. And coming back and seeing how that reframes things, there's kind of this critique of mental health in favour of, like even the the lead psychiatrist at the mental institution ends up believing in in Harvey and finding Mm. that that's where, you know, the real kind of help is. And it seems to be this message of just believe and that's where the the help will come from, I guess. That's really fascinating. Mm. I had never thought of it that way. But once you say it, it's like, uh oh, yeah, there it is. Well, there it is. But, but, but what's, what's strange about that is I read a, a bunch of just IMDb reviews and tried to Google and no one was really talking about that no. and everyone was talking about like it's just a giant rabbit. Well, to, to be fair, I think it would be odd yeah. for a Christian allegory to rely on alcohol to see God. Yeah, that, but that's <laughs> Is alcohol prayer? That, Are we going what, to church? Take me to church. That's why it stood out to me as something that didn't quite fit. Like why was he drinking? But everything else fit in terms of the company he was keeping and mm. just the, the, his whole attitude of being completely selfless and and embracing everyone equally. Mm. Um, and, yeah, so so back to the, the mental health thing, this what didn't sit right with me was this is like the Alcoholics Anonymous view where you can't overcome your addiction or your problem without religion. It's is that, that, it's is that, that linked to AA? I did not know that. Yeah, it is. Okay. It's a higher power. Okay. Not necessarily Christianity, but it's a higher power. You right. need that kind of higher power. Mm. to help you deal with your problems. And so Dowd is, is a guy with lots of trauma mm. and you mentioned about his his mother dying and he's dealing with that and he's tried alcoholism but actually what's doing it for him mm. is, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean that's interesting. I guess I can see how you'd find that off-putting but I suppose what it would then have in common with like a Christian allegory, for example, is that it's still this aspirational thing, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, you're aspiring to be this selfless, like kind, like I think that's not just Christianity, right? Like that's humanity, you know, aspirationally we hope to be these things and we look at other people who have those qualities as being better humans. You know what I mean? Like they're doing the right thing. So I don't know that it needs to be a Christian allegory and I'm not sure that it was intended to be one. It may have been. Uh, I've got no idea. But I guess to me it doesn't water down the fact that that's still like it's really the optimism that I'm seeing more so than his politeness or his manners or, you know, it's this kind of view of the world where like you know, at one stage they're talking about, okay, we're going to give you this serum. So that's the the unwanted injection. We're going to give the, you this serum. And when we give you that, you'll finally see your responsibilities. He's not seeing that. He's seeing the beauty in the world. He's picking flowers from the, yeah. from the garden that says, do not pick the flowers. He's seeing Miss Kelly for all that she is, you know, and the implication is that he's going to get this injection and all of a sudden 
like everyone around him, that stuff is going to disappear and all he's going to focus on is his responsibilities. Now, I don't know about you, but responsibility is boring to me. <laughs> like, yes, we've got to do them, but I would much rather see like the potential in the world, the opportunities, like the ways that we can make our lives more rich with things that we love and people that we love. And this isn't a God thing. This mm. is a, just a how to live your life. Thing. Like life is short. Are we going to just sit around in our doctor's office, you know, at Chumley's Rest and focus, and not even see the beautiful woman who's in love with the doctor or are we going to focus on that? And to me, it's that. It's the love story, you know, and it's the relationship he has with his sister, this beautiful relationship that they have. And, you know, even the taxi driver, I suppose, who drops him off, you know, this comes at a crucial point in the film where he says, I've seen them when I drop them off and I've seen them when I mm-hmm. take them away. And on the way here, they see the sunset. <laughs> I think he says, even if, even if it's raining, but on the way back, you know, they're berating my driving mm-hmm. skills basically. And that's to me, the world, you know what I mean? We're, we've become this world where we're just berating each other's <laughs> driving skills and having road rage. And what we really aspire to is just love and peace between each other. So mm-hmm. I guess I still see that as, as a positive thing and something that I find motivational and inspirational. Yeah, and I like that about the movie as well, and I thought that was positive. I just think it's possible to be a good person and have those same values and not have the shoehorned uh, invisible (laughs) rabbit in the picture. (laughs) That's the only thing I objected to. And um, it just left me feeling at the end like, hang on a second, you you just kind of snuck an extra thing in there. Well, I just want you to know that at the time the film came out, um, some guy called John McCartan of The New Yorker said of Harvey that, it's a movie that only a case-hardened wowser would fail to find beguiling. So from here on out, we will know you as the case-hardened wowser. Case-hardened wowser. <laughs> Take that. I tell you what, I did like Vita's daughter. Yes. And um, Myrtle May. Myrtle yeah, May. When she hooked up with the guy, the guy. First of all, a terrible couple. <laughs> <laughs> Great couple. Are you joking? Perfect match. Although I don't know how. How that's going to fly at the uh, Christmas table, you know, like um, know. you brought your your mother's abuser. To but back exactly, to- <laughs> and he's and he's like a sadist. <laughs> yeah, but I think Myrtle May's into it. Didn't you get, <laughs> didn't you get the vibe that um, she was a little bit into it? Yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah. but she was just desperate. Yeah, well, I mean, hilarious. that's fair to say too. But she seemed pretty keen. Oh, and and honestly, I I did have a little vomit in my mouth with Miss mm. Kelly and Doctor Sanderson. Yeah. I mean, he came around in the end, but honestly, mm. like you were talking about Myrtle May and yeah. Mister Wilson being a bad couple, like I'm like Miss Kelly, run for the hills. You can do better than Doctor Sanderson. And she was a funny one because she was clearly into uh, Elwood. He well, was just. I like, think she just liked being seen for the first yeah, time. He was true. giving her everything that Doctor Sanderson wasn't giving yeah. her. He, he finally saw how wonderful she was, and she is. You know, she's wonderful, and she's got this absolute knockdown admiration for Dr. Sanderson, who's just a piece of garbage, really, and treats her like garbage. Yeah. Uh, But she was a little bit incompetent. Like (laughs) when he asked for the card. (laughs) I Dr. Sanderson. And and she was just standing there holding the card and he was like. Because she's in love, mate. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we do funny things. (laughs) (laughs) You're saying she's incompetent. He's the one who's. Look, you cannot say that Miss Kelly's incompetent. By comparison to Dr. Sanderson. You know, he brings the whole operation down single-handedly. Yeah, he kind of made some hasty conclusions (laughs) on 
very little evidence. His arrogance was yeah. astounding. Yes, terrible couple. But then you don't really wish Miss Kelly to run off with Elwood either, do you? There's not a lot no. of redeemable men in this movie, to be fair. Look, I, I, I didn't like Elwood P. Dow. Mm, he's he problematic. Just, Red flag alert. Yeah, if I'd met him, I'd be like, no thanks. You know what I mean? <laughs> he was just this kind of wide-eyed... And I, I, I do get yeah. it. I get the message. But in everyone else's defence, he was kind of ruining everyone's life. <laughs> he, he was kind of ruining everyone's <laughs> life. It's true. Um, but only because society mm. didn't really accept what was going on with him. And, you know, nor would we now, to be fair, no. uh, accept that someone's just got an imaginary friend, although it was harmless. I, I get what you mean. He's In that sense, he's, he's not someone you want to be like. No. When you watch him on the screen and you watch this movie, and it is a movie and the rabbit, it's all fascinating because yep. it's a movie. If that jumped out of the screen and was in my life, I would probably <laughs> be giving him a wide berth, to yep. be fair. Yep. Um, but what about, okay, what about Aunt Ethel? Because mm. she's the antithesis character, one of the antithesis characters in this story. So Aunt Ethel turns up to the party and mm-hmm. she's full of just criticism yeah. of everybody there. She's a nasty piece of work. Yeah. She's all about image. She's completely selfish. You know, she's absolutely the opposite of Elwood. But I suppose what I find interesting too is that they are trying to impress her, right? Mm-hmm. But she's nasty. She's awful. Why are oh, we yeah. trying to impress Aunt Ethel? Like, sure, she might have social connections and, and we're trying to find Myrtle May a husband. Clearly yeah. that's <laughs> that's the that's... number one name of the game here. <laughs> that uh, needs to happen ASAP. <laughs> immediately. But I guess this is part of why... I love it and what makes me think when I watch this movie. Okay, sure. In reality, I'm not going to befriend this guy and spend a lot of time mm. with him probably. It's a, it's a problematic situation. But if we go beyond that, it's like, well, sorry, who's the crazy one? Is it him? He's happy. He's making friends everywhere. He sees the world in through these rose-tinted glasses. Or is it Aunt Ethel? She's the opposite. She hates everyone. Why do we try and impress that person? Why are we why do we want to see our responsibilities? Why do we want this injection? You know, that's the world that we're living in. And sure, there's a happy medium there somewhere and they're both crazy and, and we probably want to exist yeah. in the middle. But nevertheless, I, I guess it's that distinction that makes me think. It's like, well, why are we in the rat race? Why are we trying to impress a billionaire? And why are we mm. trying to like slave away and make money for the rich when we could just be living lives in, in beautiful community and happy together? I mean, that's, now I'm, I'm, that I'm all drinking the Kool-Aid That all here. sounds so nice. But the <laughs> one thing we haven't mentioned about Elwood is that he's he lives quite a privileged life and he doesn't want for anything. Like yeah. he has money, he has a place to live. At the start of the movie he receives some mail and he just rips it up. Like he doesn't care. <laughs> he's got no responsibilities no. but he doesn't need responsibilities because he's got nothing that he needs to provide for. That's or true. Do. Yeah. So he has the luxury of being, yeah, I can just live spend my all day life, in a bar, <laughs> spend all day in the bar, make friends, invite them over, you know, impose on my family to make dinner for this person. And I've just invited them around. It's a luxury that he has. That's true. That other people don't have. So I've done a bit of Googling and I've seen that there's been some plans for various remakes over the years of Harvey. Mm-hmm. So we know Harvey's a remake of a play already. Uh, but there's Steven Spielberg's had it on his desk. Netflix has supposedly mm-hmm. been working towards an adaptation of it. And I want to get your thoughts on how these guys would work as Elwood P. Dow because these are some names that I saw bandied about as potential Elwood well, there's, P. There's Dow. one I can think of. All right. Would be ideal. Who do you like? I think it's like a Jim Carrey. Okay, so Jim Carrey's first yeah. on my list. He has been considered, and I actually think of the list I'm about to read for you mm-hmm. that he's – 
He's my number one, but I do love Jim Carrey. I, would also I know say, he's in Acquired Taste. Um, the other one is uh, Tom Hanks. Yes, Tom Hanks. Yeah, yeah you, you have you been googling? <laughs> no, no, I don't, no, I haven't. I haven't heard about this. But Tom Tom Hanks has that just in all of his movies has that blind optimism. Like that's his character. That's right. We've got a Forrest Gump. Yeah, another Forrest Gump. Yeah. So he was uh, Spielberg's pick, I think. Tom Hanks. But how would you feel about it being an Adam Sandler movie? It would be a very different movie. It would be a very different movie. <laughs> I'm just imagining early Adam Sandler. Like, <laughs> I'm Elwood Peter. <laughs> but I mean, later, later Adam Sandler. I mean, we've got some pretty blindly optimistic Adam Sandler characters too. Mm-hmm. I mean, Happy yeah, yeah. Gilmore. Hello. I mean, oh, yeah. he's, he's got um, some Billy issues Madison, too. Yeah. <laughs> Billy Madison, mm-hmm. um, The Wedding Singer. Okay, we've also had suggested John Travolta. Come on. Now, that one stresses me out a little bit. He's at least 20 years too old for a start. You want Simpsons John Travolta. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I love John Travolta. He's obviously a very established hero of cinema, but I don't love him as Elwood P. Dowd. No, he can't. He does not give off the air of, like, optimism. No. no, There's no way. To be fair, I think he was suggested quite some time ago. And then the last one. Robert Downey Jr. He could make it. He, he's a very capable actor. I'm he's, sure he he's do done it. some other red flag characters along yeah. the way. <laughs> but again, like just that list of names, all of them you can see, except for John Travolta. I really don't get that one. But all of them you can sort of see playing Elwood P. Dowd. But they're just so different. The story yeah. would be completely changed. And the thought of any of those people playing him honestly stresses me out. <laughs> So, Amanda, the last two choices that you've had for Get Wrecked Mm -hmm. were more or less about nostalgia. And so we thought it would be good to explore that idea um, because I think we have kind of slightly different takes, different perspectives. And so to frame the discussion, I suggested that we each choose maybe two or three things that we're obsessed with when we were younger. So did you choose two? Well, look, we've already got a couple there, Mm -hmm. but I, I probably wouldn't say Harvey's up there with like the ones I return to every time. Babysitter's Club, absolutely. When it comes to books, absolutely. That entire series is my childhood. But there probably aren't a lot of other books that do that for me. And I think what's interesting is that I probably read to myself more than anything. There aren't so many from when I was really little that my parents read to me, for example, that I have a lot of nostalgia about. Now, one I should probably have some nostalgia about is The Magic Faraway Tree because that entire series, Enid Blyton, uh, was big for my parents and was read to me and my siblings many, many times. I just, I guess I always saw through Enid Blyton. I don't know. Like I think the idea of a tree and, and mm-hmm. going up to these magical lands, by all means, but the, the actual writing's pretty garbage. Yeah. And I, I distinctly remember getting bored by those yeah. books um, and having read them to my children now, uh, still found them pretty average. And yet there's that little element of the fantasy that I think the idea held those books up. So there's a little bit there, but having said that, um, I don't feel like it was sort of formative for me. So what about you? Have you got books? What do you- I thought of three categories mm-hmm. of, I guess, obsession and chose one from each. So the okay. first category is something that I just watched like a million times. Mm-hmm. Right? The second was just something like a book that I carried with me at all times and reread and read a million times. And the third ones were something that I was obsessed with collecting. Right. And that's kind of similar to the Babysitter's Club. Yeah, having um, to have the entire set yeah. kind of thing. 
Yeah. So the first category, what I've watched a hundred times, mm-hmm. there was actually only one movie that I could think of and it's pretty random mm-hmm. and it's Spaceballs, the movie. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was a kid, maybe, I don't know, ages eight to 11, let's just say that's the kind of age right we're talking about. Uh-huh. I used to tape a lot of things off the TV like a lot of people did, VHS tapes back at the time. This is, um, you know, 80s, early 90s that we're talking about. And I just watched that thing obsessively (laughs) over just years. I would just be like, I'm bored. I'll just watch Spaceballs again. And And what we've got to remember, kids, is that we didn't have iPads. We didn't have Netflix back then, right? We didn't even have the internet. So this was it. This is our entertainment. (laughs) And of all the movies I taped, like some of them I'd watched once, but this one, that was it. I got to the point where I could literally replay the entire movie in my head. I could sit down and just write you the entire script. Like I'd seen it at least 50 times. And now I'm like, why did I love that movie so much that I just watched it again and again? Why indeed? I don't know. I think it was just, maybe it was just the fart jokes. (laughs) And... They just really connected they really, with you. But thinking about it today, like the weird thing was it is a parody of Star Wars. Right. And I hadn't seen Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say uh, my probably watched a hundred times over and continue to rewatch mm-hmm. and will never get sick of Home Alone. Home Alone to me, and I will say this now as an adult, mm. it is per- perfect. It's mm. a perfect film. And I'm, I could be wrong, but I think it's an original screenplay. I think it's, mm. you know, written for film, which is you know, just so rare these days. So it's nice to look at these gems that have been written just for a film. And there's, you cannot fault it. You said that you didn't like hectic family scenes opening movies. <laughs> and, there, and there it was. <laughs> You're right. I've got no comeback to that, honestly. <laughs> But there's just, oh, there's so many good lines, so many good lines and so many good scenes. And I was going all gooey-eyed yesterday uh, because I was talking about Lego with my mum, so since we're talking about nostalgia, and she showed me this Home Alone Lego set. It's like $450. Um, It is the cutest, most hilarious thing I have ever seen and I was just losing my mind with all the tiny, cute little details from the film that are in this Lego set. Um. $450 is a bit steep. for. It's a bit much. It's a bit much, um, but I did enjoy looking at the pictures for free um, online. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I will never get over Home Alone. I do rate that as my favourite movie of all time. Okay, so your movie is Home Alone. Well, I mean, it's one of them. This is the thing. I mean, that's top of the list, but I would watch Wayne's World until my eyes exploded. Um, I'd watch any Monty Python movie just about. I think there's a theme of comedies. Like I think, yeah. you know, when it comes to nostalgia for me, it's going back to like I just need a bit of a pick-me-up kind mm-hmm. of thing and these films will always do that. So what's your next category? So my next category is things that I was obsessed with collecting and my choice for that was Mad Magazines. So between the ages of I think it, we're talking about the same time period until maybe a bit later, so 8 till say 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. Um, I collected something about 200 and every time we went to the news agents, I was always looking for the latest one in secondhand bookshops. I was always seeing Mm -hmm. if they had any back issues and I would just buy them with whatever money I had. And I think I just really connected with the style of humor. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm familiar with mad magazines too. I never got obsessed with them, but. Yeah. So I was trying to think what drew me to them and they were a bit more grown up. They were kind of aimed at like teenagers, uh, young adults. 
mm. age groups. And they hinted at certain things that I didn't quite understand and didn't know about. And I could tell that they weren't the kind of usual content that was packaged for children that was all very yeah, safe I mean, they, or a little bit it was, edgy. It was also very dense with content. Like yeah. if you're thinking magazines, most of them are pretty flippant stuff. You've mm. got a, maybe one or two things you actually want to read and then you flick to your horoscope and that's yeah. it. Yeah. Well, speaking of magazines, I suppose, like any girl or woman my age living through that time, would have to say Dolly Doctor was like just a straight up essential item at any sleepover or in any conversation. But I didn't really care too much for the rest of the Dolly magazine. Like I would read those sorts of girlfriend magazine or whatever that were around at the time. I'd certainly gladly read them, but I didn't get Mm -hmm. much out of it. So you weren't really a collector? I wasn't definitely not a collector of those, but I would still say that Dolly Doctor holds a place in the heart of every (laughs) woman my age. (laughs) Again, for the (laughs) humour. And because, again, it's that edginess of Mm. like, oh, I'm reading about something I probably shouldn't be reading about right now. Um, So probably that age group, and this is the middle grade age group, right, where you just want to, you're ready to know, but you're actually not, and you're not getting any of the jokes. It's all going over your head. <laughs> so what's the third category then? So the you? third category is something that, that I carried with me at all times. And so I couldn't actually think of anything from when I was really young. So the example I had was from a bit later in my life. So when I was about 16 or 17, <laughs> I used to constantly, everywhere I went, carry a copy of A Clockwork Orange by oh. Anthony Burgess. Oh, God. At what age did you say? 16, 17. We're forming a picture of We're you as a picture. person. <laughs> <laughs> where are you? From Spaceballs to Mad Magazine <laughs> that, to I, Clockwork I Orange. I actually feel like it sums you up quite well. <laughs> <laughs> No, but there was something about that age, right? You, you develop this desire to break out of like this system it's that the you're born into. and the kind of, yeah. Yeah, the, the parents. Disregard for authority. and Exactly. And I think that metaphor of the clockwork orange of being, you know, forced unnaturally into this kind of mechanical system, I mm. found very captivating. This is the formula for how to become a case hardened wowser. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. This is the reading list. Did you ever just carry around a book and reread it? No, there's no books that I carried Mm -hmm. around until they became threadbare and fell apart. I think I would move from thing to thing. And honestly, when I was trying to think back to books that, you know, were formative for me, I couldn't really think of what they might be and and they must be there somewhere. But what I did think of were some authors maybe Mm -hmm. who I read a lot of their work. So one would be Roald Dahl. And to me, that's very nostalgic because Roald Dahl books were read to us in school by teachers that I loved, you know, and so you you start to become in love with words and in love with the way that stories sound. And so certainly Roald Dahl does that for me and specifically, it's probably an unusual pick, but specifically the twits. And I think that that's probably because that was the first one I read on my own and it was given to me as a gift and that's sort of where I found Roald Dahl for the first time. But also, again, because it's a bit edgy like it's you know it's a bit sort of out there I guess like if if we're talking about how your picks form a picture of you like mine's pretty chaotic but it's a it's a giant list Mm -hmm. and I'll just get I'll read a few off and and see how you feel about what this says about me um so I've got Monty Python the Holy Grail Mm -hmm. Stand By Me The Labyrinth Charlie and the Chocolate Factory Edward Scissorhands Jurassic Park Clueless Batman Returns Back to the Future Princess Bride Wayne's World Never ending story and randomly the client. 
Uh, I was a big Brad Renfro fan back in the day. <laughs> but those are the films that speak to me. I yeah. mean, Mighty Ducks, Cool Runnings. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's I'm showing my age here, but a lot of comedies in there and a lot of these sort of fantastical adventure stories, and I think those are the ones that I'm drawn to for sure. Mm. But I was also thinking about how, for me, TV has actually probably formed a bigger part of my childhood than even movies or books. Mm-hmm. And, of course, The Simpsons has to be top of yeah, that definitely. list. You know, I quote The Simpsons, I would say, daily minimum to this day, whether I realise it or not. <laughs> it's just become part of my language now. That, that's really true. And I I didn't mention that and I didn't think of it almost because it's like so universal in kind of our age group. Yes. That I remember in high school everyone had seen seasons one to nine through nine mm. Simpsons and could, you know, recite quotes from episodes all throughout. Mm. So it was And you know what so they're universal. talking about. Yeah. But what's funny now is occasionally like I'll be at a work meeting and it'll slip out and someone much younger than me will just look at me blankly. Yeah. <laughs> and I just think, how can you not know? This is like you, sh- you should be taught this at school. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I also think of... Um, well, Neighbours is a big one for me, mm-hmm. but I again, I came to that later, but a lot of Brits would be familiar with Neighbours and um, and just how cheesy it is. Oh, God, I love it so much. But other big ones. Now, this isn't so much for me, but for some people I know, right? So I went to uni with an old friend and we, we studied law together and he pretty much credits law and order with the reason why he studied law. <laughs> and he said to me once, you know, if Scrubs was big back when we were <laughs> picking yeah. out uni courses, I probably would have become a doctor. But um, he's a priest now. But anyway. Because <laughs> <laughs> he watched the Vicar of Dibley or something. <laughs> I think it's interesting though. You've just described to me some pretty heavy nostalgia there that's had a big influence on you. And yet the other day when I was speaking to you about this, you told me that, you know, nostalgia is nothing and that it all means nothing to you. And that (laughs) So those are the things that I enjoyed as a a child Mm -hmm. and growing up, but I don't think I have the same reaction to them. Like they're not things that I revisit. So you're not still watching that VHS of Spaceballs. (laughs) I haven't seen Spaceballs since I was that age. Maybe you should watch it again, see what happens. Maybe. But I actually, I picked up a Mad Magazine today Mm. and just kind of leafed through it and I didn't get a wave of nostalgia. I was just like, okay. So do you still go back and, and watch those shows and rewatch the ones that you've mentioned as being nostalgic, like even today, go yes. back and rewatch them? Yes, I do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would consider myself a romantic, right? Mm-hmm. And I think nostalgia falls into that category. It's just there's something about I have an attachment to it. You yeah. know what I mean? I can't let it go. It's part of me. And I really think it is. I think it is formative. I think it these things that were so important at the time, it, it, these art forms that mm-hmm. were so important at the time have formed how I see the world and how I continue to see the world as an adult, I think, and the kinds of messages I want to pass on to my children. And maybe that's what my dad was doing with me. I'm sure it was. And it's what I want to do with my children now. It's like, you have to see this because it's important, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just a movie. And I don't know why that is. But, like, I don't know how you can move on from this stuff so mm. easily, like... So I have a I have a theory. Okay. I'm going to make it philosophical. All right, let's go. So we've had a conversation before about your self-perception. Yes. And so you said that you pretty much feel like the same person that you were mm. when you were young. Okay. Do I need to lie down on the couch while we have this conversation? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Yeah. Like just a continuation of that person. You know, you've seen more things, you've done more things, mm. but at your core, you still like the same things. I'm still you're 12. Still, <laughs> you're still 12. <laughs> you still have the same interests more or less, like, you know. More so I think that is a big factor because I feel very differently. I feel kind of more like life is a, a process of change mm-hmm. and you get more experiences and, and you see more things and, and experience more things. And you kind of change from one person to another. Mm-hmm. And, I, and when I kind of look back at the person that I was in an earlier stage of life, I feel more like that's a different person. Um, I think we'd have different interests and different kind of goals. And so when I go back and revisit things that I enjoyed when I was younger, I don't feel that connection with them as if I am still the person who's enjoying that thing. I don't feel that same kind of enthusiasm or connection. And I think that's maybe also why you want to write for children Mm. Mm. because you have that kind of (laughs) real connection with your childhood that Mm. that I don't think I have in the same way. Yeah. What's funny is that I think that this is actually like the theme of the book that I'm writing now Mm -hmm. is this conversation, right? And it's Harvey and it's all of these things. I'm going to steal your idea. (laughs) (laughs) It's don't grow up. Mm -hmm. Like you're talking about you've evolved and that's amazing and it's absolutely probably what I should be doing. But (laughs) I don't want to. Adulthood sucks. You know, the adulthood that we end up in sucks. It's responsibility. Mm. It's, you know, work over play it's tiredness it's aches and pains and like this is the adulthood that is the day-to-day life and the reality and I guess I'm just stuck in this world of like wanting to just recapture youth and to not to be 12 again right but to just have that love and that passion and that vivaciousness of a 12 year old that lust for life you know that's in me somewhere. I'm just very, very tired <laughs> <laughs> and I have responsibilities. And that is the the heart and the essence of the story that I'm writing. It's like, don't grow up. You don't have to. You can still find joy in these simple things. So I'm going to recommend to you a book called JR by William Gaddis. Okay, so this is not a book that I would actually recommend to you to read in its entirety. Good, I, because it's massive. It looks like a dictionary. <laughs> yeah, it's what, 730 pages long. And I did read it a few years ago and it took me about a month to read. And wow. so I wouldn't recommend this to you or really to anyone listening to the show. unless <laughs> oh, Great, great choice. <laughs> <laughs> unless you look into it and it's specifically the kind of book that you would um, want to read because I don't think that uh, there are many people that, like it's a very niche kind of novel. Okay. So what I'm just going to recommend is that you read like 50 pages. Okay, that I can do. that's pretty much enough that you kind of get a gist of where it's going and mm-hmm. what kind of book it is. And to be honest, reading 50 pages or reading 750 pages, it's a pretty similar experience. Okay. And it's less really about, I guess, the plot as it is about the style and the manner in which it's, it's told. Mm-hmm. And you can get that in the first 50 pages. And the reason I chose this book is not to torture you, although it's a little <laughs> bit about that. I do get that sense. But we've touched on uh, in some of our discussions a little bit about the idea of originality mm. in writing and whether you can be original or not or whether all of that, um, everything's just been done before. Mm. So this is a novel that is very original in the way that it's told, in in the way that it's written. Also in, I guess you could say, in the story, it is quite original, mm-hmm. um, but mostly in in the style 
And so I wanted to expose uh, an, an alternative way of writing things. So yeah, I think it would be good for you to read and I think it will spark a interesting discussion. Great. Well, I, uh, I look forward to those 50 pages. By all means, if you get into it, just keep going. I just want to see if it'll record the sound of me gently placing this book <laughs> down. <laughs> it is a large book. It's a large book. Right. So that's it for today. Amanda, where can our listeners find us? Well, you've already found us, so I, su- I suggest that you uh, have a fair idea of where to find us, but we'd love it if you'd follow us and we'd love it if you'd share the podcast with your friends. And if you're a masochist, you can follow along with our Get Wrecked for this week and read <laughs> JR by William Gaddis. But if you're a romantic, you can just go watch The Labyrinth. <laughs> I mean... Everybody knows about grey sweatpants, right? But what about grey leggings? <laughs> we don't talk enough about grey leggings. And until next time, right on. Right on. <laughs> Something doesn't seem quite right. So which I movies said, did don't you love? <laughs> because they had hot dudes in them. <laughs> I want to get your list. No, well, I'm just I was thinking about I'm ashamed to admit it. The sexual awakening movies, mm-hmm. right? And I'm not sure if I should tell you my list. <laughs> I'm not sure what it'll say about me. So this this would be like mid nineties. It's more. I mean, it's not so much the time in my life. It was more that the movie evoked that feeling yeah, in me. I was like, yeah. oh, hello. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, no, I'm not going to guess. Well, you actually give me one or two, and then I'll try and guess the rest. Um, <laughs> I'm finding it very hard to confess. <laughs> The labyrinth. <laughs> oh yeah, fair enough. Like there was, there was definitely some um, cucumber in the in the pants actions going on there. <laughs>